Father, we thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for your word, the glory and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. These draw us together. Our faith is in Christ Jesus alone for our salvation. The word is the source of our truth. This is what this church and what your church down through the millennial have stand on. And we stand on the fact that our Lord did what he said he did and he is who he said he is. He is the son of God. He is the only one that can bring us to the Father. His death was a substitution for us, Lord. And we believe that and we thank you, Lord, that you did that. And your word now has left us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And so we preach and teach from your word, Lord. It's, most, it's the thing that exalts you the most. So Lord, help us today as we study. May you open our minds to this beautiful truth. May our hearts be pierced, Lord. May we be convicted and encouraged. We know your spirit can do that, Lord. I thank you for our time in advance together. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a man named George Mueller. Many of you would know that name. He was a native German, really a Prussian um, he spent most of his life um, in, uh, growing up in Germany and then moved to England. He lived throughout the 19th century. He was born in September 27, 1805, and he died in March 10, 1898 at the age of 92. He saw amazing things. He witnessed the Great Awakening of 1859, and he said this, he saw the conversion of hundreds of thousands of people in the Great Awakening. He, he followed and, and, and was part up, followed up in the ministry of D.L. Moody. He stepped into his shoes behind him in some ways. He preached for Charles Spurgeon, and he inspired the missionary faith of Hudson Taylor to go to China. He spent most of his life and ministry in Bristol, England, Listen to this. He pastored the same church for 66 years. He, he, was, he was a kind of an independent pastor, independent thinker in a little way. He was premillennial. He was Calvinistic and Baptist in his position. He celebrated the Lord's table every week, and he admitted non-baptized people into membership. It was a bit unconventional in his time. But nobody, nobody who met him did not understand how much he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. His heart was huge, and he dedicated everything he had to the good of others and the glory of Christ. In 1834, when he was 28 years old, he founded a ministry called the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. And because he saw that there were so many problems with liberalism in the church and world strategies that were coming into the church, he decided to do something about it. He developed five branches in this institute. One was this, school for children and adults to teach the Bible knowledge. He saw that people were not growing in their knowledge of, of the Bible. They were listening to the world more. So number one, he wanted to accomplish that. Number two, he wanted to circulate Bibles. He wanted to get God's word in the hands of people. And so he had part of his ministry was dedicated to that. Three, he wanted to support missionaries to take the gospel around the world. He saw the effects of Hudson Taylor and others, and he believed that the church needed to support that because God promised he would save people from every tribe and tongue and have them in heaven with him. Fourth, he wanted tracts and books. Remember, it was a reading society back then. Somewhere we've lost that with television and everything else. It was a reading society. Um, so he published tracts and books that he wanted people to read. And then fifth, and probably the one you're most familiar with with George Mueller, 
was he started an orphanage. And his point was to board, clothe, and scripturally educate the destitute children who had lost both parents. That was his goal. This became the most popular uh, of people who know who George Mueller is. In his life, he had, listen to this, 10,024 orphans that he cared for. When he started the orphanage in 1834, all of England only had 3,600 orphans in their, under care. They had twice as many of that under eight in prison at the time. It's an amazing stat, isn't it? One of the greatest effects of Mueller's ministry was that he inspired others to do what he was doing. By the, 50 years later into his ministry, there were 100,000 100, orphans in care in England because of him. Now, he did all this while preaching three times a week. And from 1830 to 1898, he preached at least 10,000 sermons. Now, when he turned 70, he wasn't done. He had always wanted to be a missionary, so he took the next 17 years of his life and traveled the world and preached. He went to 42 different countries. He preached on the average of once a day and addressed more than 3 million people in 17 years. From the end of his travels at 1892, he returned home. He was 87 years old. And until his death of March of 1898, he preached in his church and worked for the Scripture Knowledge Institute. At 92, he wrote this. I have been able every day and all day to work, and that with ease as my, in my 70 years of ministry. On March 9th, 1898, the evening on Wednesday, he led a prayer meeting at his church and preached. The next day, a cup of tea was brought to his door and the woman who would normally knock on the door heard no answer back. And as she opened the door, she found him dead, kneeling next to his bed where he was seen every morning of his life in prayer. Thousands of children gathered um, at his funeral procession in Bristol. Um, after 66 years of ministry, tens of thousands of people stood on the road just simply to honor him. Men from workshops and from rich and poor and humble kitchens, all seeking to say one last goodbye to man who had touched so many. House number three, he called, which was an orphanage number three. 1,000 of his orphans showed up and did their own service for George Mueller. And what they said at the end of the service, they said, now we have lost our second father. That's how dear he was to him. It was said, and let me close this introduction with this. It was said that when you spent time with George Miller, you knew God better. When you spent time with him, your faith was led, had led you to see the beauty of Christ like no other. He had a way of anointing Jesus Christ in your presence. He had a trust in God like very few did. And when he died, many said they felt like he was the one who introduced them to the glory of Christ. Well, as we go into this section, it's a very interesting passage in the scripture. We see actually three groups of people. We see haters of God. We see pretenders of God. And then we see true worshipers of God. They're all in this passage that Pastor Brian read to us already. The haters of Christ are obvious. You're going to see them in the first couple of verses. But then you're going to see one who is dedicated to the glory of Christ. 
She doesn't care about her social class and what people think of her. She is dedicated toward the Lord Jesus Christ and her actions show what is in her heart. And then you're gonna see the pretender. One who walked and talked with Christ. The one who knew all of the Sunday school answers, had everything right, watched the great miracles of God. We're gonna see what Jesus does with him. And we're gonna realize that in time, your flesh can't make you walk with God. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. Flesh can carry us for a long time. This happens in the church. People are raised, young people are raised in the church and, and, they, and they know what to do. They know what to say. They know how to act. But what we're gonna see today is eventually your flesh can't keep you. Your flesh cannot do what only the spirit can do. And eventually your flesh takes you where it wants and you become from a pretender and fall into a group of those who reject Christ. This is a beautiful passage, and my goal this morning in this text is to challenge us and encourage us, to assure us that we're worshipers of the Lord, not just pretenders, not just ones who have lip service for the Lord Jesus Christ, but truly strive in every way to anoint the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily lives. I wanna look at five things today, this morning, and I hope you have your Bibles open. Look with me at Mark chapter 14 verse 1. The first point is this. The hater and his false hypocritical religion. The hater and his false hypocritical religion. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Well, verse one is now into a transition. You'll notice this right at the beginning, the first word in the text says now. Well, this marks that something has changed. Remember, Jesus has just spent an incredible amount of time this week teaching in the temple. He not only cleansed it when he came in, but then he came back the next day and he began to teach. And, and there, the crowds came around him. They were listening to him teach. And then, then you remember the, the Sanhedrin, this religious group that had power over the Jewish people. They started sending one after another to test him, to try to dissuade him and try to discount him. And each one of them he handled with God's word and handled them perfectly and sent them away without able to refute what he said. He showed the example of a widow and her might in the temple. He, he took his disciples and wanted them to see this woman who gave all that she had and understand the confusion of the false teachers. And Then they came out of the temple. You remember this? And the disciples turned and said, well, look at this glorious building. Isn't this so marvelous, Master? And he said, in three, in three days, I'm tearing it down. And he began to speak of both his death and burial, resurrection, but also the physical destruction of the temple, which pointed towards 70 AD. And then he outlined, look, I do not want you to worship this church that I'm about ready to birth. That's not to be worshiped that way. I don't want, I don't want the church to worship a building. I don't want them to worship religion. I want them to worship me. And that led them to a long walk from Jerusalem down across the Kindred Valley and up onto the Mount of Olives where Jesus gave his Olivet Discourse. And that's what we spent our last few weeks in Mark chapter 13. If you've missed that, we'd really encourage you to go back and listen to us as he begins to talk about the return of Christ, 
the birth pains, the, the struggles, the, the lies, and all of the deceit that will go on before actual the coming of Christ. And then he describes so clearly and accurately when he will begin to come back. I trust that you will take time to read that. Now, now the day is coming to an end. Here's our Lord with his disciples. And the day is coming to an end. And it seems as though he's going to go to a dinner to cap this day off. And at that dinner, he's going to re- reveal who's friend and who's foe. That's his goal. He's going to reveal these people. Now, notice in your text, Passover and the unleavened bread here. And these are the two events that kind of maybe, I think we can see them now as they've come together. And when they were first given, they were very distinct. The Passover is, is when the death angel came in and struck the, the firstborn of, of, the, of the Egyptians, both, both man and beast, and, and passed over the Israel. If they had painted the blood on their doorposts, it was, a, it was clearly pointing towards the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the last Passover lamb and then they were to as they were exiting they were to sweep their house they were to clean out unleavened bread they were not to have any leaven within their house it was it was a demonstration of thankfulness as God was taking them away from the sin of Egypt and all of that well these feasts and these festivals and this remembrance have all kind of become together the Passover was certainly a little more solemn as I remembered what happened there and the feast became more festive and they would celebrate. Remember, there's millions of people now in Jerusalem to celebrate these things. And so this is what's taking place at this time. Notice this text says that the Passover and the eleven bread were two days away. The writers of the scriptures mark this to help us understand that we're very close to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Passover, they're, they're going to worship Passover and think about that and celebrate and offer this lamb and so forth. But right among them, right in their midst, is the Passover lamb. And on the day when they sacrifice those lambs, the king of glory is going to be sacrificed. And so the writers here of the scriptures are marking this. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to be clear in their communication. They, they, they tell us that that's two days. So I believe this is just Wednesday evening before his death on Friday. Now if you read John's account in John chapter 12, he says six days, but a good study of that will help you understand John's talking about when he came to Jerusalem area. He came into that Bethany area six days before this. Now notice he brings up the chief priests and the scribes. Matthew adds the elders of the people. Notice these chief priests and these scribes, these elders of the people, they're gathered together. It seems that they're having this apparent unofficial meeting. Now, as I spoke, I spoke about this a couple weeks ago. The Jewish court was one of the most just courts in all the world. And, and, and still today has a, is known for its justice. But particularly back in here, they would never compromise on dealing with justice because they felt they were representing God. Well, in the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ, they throw that all out in order to kill Jesus. And they begin way before the trial of Jesus. They begin now. They're assembling together, talking about how they're gonna get rid of Jesus. Now, if you're ever in a board meeting or some sort and you have an agenda items, you, you have agenda items you want to talk about, then there's the off-the-record agenda items, right? Well, think about this. Here's our agenda why we're gathering, to kill Jesus. Now, I guarantee you, there was no email put out about that. There, there was no agenda out there, because listen, these are the keepers of the what? The law. And, and we're working through Exodus on Wednesday night, having a blast. We're just about to the Ten Commandments. But if you remember, there was one commandment in there about killing, right? 
Is that correct? I haven't studied it yet, but I'm going to get there. <laughs> so think about this. Here's the religious leaders of the world, these, I mean of Israel. Here they are. They're gathered together, the chief priests and scribes, the elders. They are talking about committing murder. That's what they're talking about. And so this is totally off the record. This is probably in Caiaphas's uh, courtyard, as Matthew 26, 3 says. They've assembled there, and they're trying to figure out how they get rid of the Lord Jesus. Notice the goal of the meeting, look at the end of verse 1, was how they could seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. How can they do this deceptively? Now remember, this is how twisted their thinking gets. This is what sin does to you. They're, they may have, and this is my thought that possibly they were doing this, in this time, during this Feast of Unleavened Bread, was you get rid of the leaven. You get it out of your house. It represented sin. Guess who they're attributing leaven to? Probably the Lord Jesus Christ. They're probably in their twisted thinking saying, we can get rid of him, even kill him, because we are practicing this unleavened bread, this Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is how far the haters of Christ go. They will justify murder. Justify a deceptive way of doing it. This religious group was twisting all of this. And, and though they were uncertain at this point of how they would do this, how they would do this, look at the text. They are thinking about how they could craftily, strategically, deceptive get this done. Right from that, you would think, if you had the Spirit of God and if you knew God at all, you would know that that was wrong to do that. So this reference, look at this. Verse one exposes the sinful malice uh, and throws just a spotlight on the true character of haters of God. Haters of God, they're willing to break every command in order to get their way. Look at verse two with me. For they were saying, I want to stop right there, that word saying, it's in an imperfect tense, and basically what it means is they kept saying over and over, it was repeated. They're repeating this, and they kept saying over and over, we can't do this during the festival. We can't do this during the festival. This is going to be bad. We can't do this. Now, think what happens. Isn't it amazing how quickly they change their mind when an evil opportunity presents itself? So they're saying, in this meeting, according to verse 2, we can't do this during this time, not during Passover, not during the festival. We can't do this. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows, Judas shows up. An evil opportunity. See, when you're not led by the Spirit of God, when you're not regenerated by the Spirit of God and have him in your life, you can have all the moral upbringing and concern and outward perception you want, but in the end, your flesh will win. And you'll end up doing what you said you wouldn't. And that's what happens to these men. Oh, we're not going to do this now. We're not going to do this now. Oh, they gave in to evil. And then not to mention our sovereign God that knew he was going to sacrifice his son on the Passover as the last lamb for us. Isn't it amazing? As we look at our sovereign God working all of this out. And how blind they are. Here's the last lamb in their presence. Right there, the one who can bring them to the kingdom of God. Remember, they're all about the kingdom, how they're going to be first in the kingdom and all of those things. The lamb is in their presence, and they want to destroy him. This is the wickedness of men. Notice finally in the end of verse 2, to finish this point out, that they're worried about the writing of people. And I think like so many other leaders, whether it be religious or political, the concern is perception, not truth. 
Can I get an amen? Is that not happening today? We are so concerned with perception, we have no concern with truth anymore in our world today. And they're worried about what are the people gonna do? Oh, hey, this could be a problem. And look, when you live your life that way, you live in fear. Here are these great rulers, these 70 men ruling and reigning on, upon Jerusalem and, and upon the Jewish people. They're absolutely captured by fear. When you don't have the spirit of God, you're afraid. These men were afraid of all kinds of things. They were afraid of military response from Romans. They were particularly afraid of their loss of power and jurisdiction. That's what it's about, isn't it? Power. So I gotta say the right things and do the right things and be a right perception in front of them so I don't lose the authority that I have. Notice also that they did not wanna have any more major financial loss. When Jesus cleansed the temple earlier in the week, a couple days before this, Oh, that hurt them bad. <laughs> that hit them right in the wallet. And they're worried about that. Remember, money and power and prestige, that's of the flesh and uh, not the glory of God, not obeying him. And you can see fear dominates them. They simply feared Jesus. They did not fear the true and living God who they were supposed to be putting forth to the people. Second thought, number two, the gospel reveals the true worshiper. The gospel reveals the true worshiper. I love this thought. We're gonna look at verse three in just a moment. But let me explain the point. When you love the gospel, it exposes who you are. When you preach the gospel, when you sing the gospel, when you, when you set up church around the gospel, the truth, it exposes Christians. See, Christians are drawn to truth. We're drawn to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear the pure word of God taught, when we hear the gospel taught, we're drawn to it. We come out to it. We go, that's right, that's what I believe, right? That the spirit of God resonates with the truth of God's word. And when we preach on Jesus Christ, which we do often here, as long as I'm in this pulpit, we love to exalt him, right? And that brings people forward. That brings people out, they go, yeah, I love Jesus. He died for me. And, and so when you get Christ and he's there, when we talk about them or this scene, he's actually in this house, when he's there, he brings out the true worshipers. That's what we do here every Sunday, Wednesday, every Bible study, every discipleship group. Everything we do, we exalt our Lord Jesus Christ through the word and it brings the believer forward. You know why? Because the unbeliever goes, ah, uh, Look, I just want to get some fire insurance. That's, I'm not after all this glory and obey and submit. I'm not after that. I just want to make sure I don't end up in hell. See, there's not a true love for Christ. And so here the gospel reveals a true worshiper. Let's look at how that happens. Notice it's in the house of Simon in verse 2. Look at verse I mean, excuse me, verse three with me. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leopard, so apparently he comes off from Mount of Olives, which he would have been working his way back to Bethany, which was behind that, away from Jerusalem, and was reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of nard, and she broke the vial and poured it on his head. Now, he's in his house called the house of Simon of leopard, and if you read the Bible, you'll find this guy, you can't find this guy. He's not in the scriptures. There have been some who have contended that he was a relative to Martha and Mary and Lazarus. There's others that said, oh, he was the father of, of um, the girls and then Lazarus, and maybe possibly even a, a brother to Lazarus. 
There's still other belief that maybe that was his home and they were staying in the home of Simon the leper. I think what's interesting is there were so many Simons in that day. It was a very common Jewish name. We even have Simon Peter, right? So that's, that's there. So um, he is called Simon and Jesus called him Peter to identify him different than the other Simons. But I think what he's doing is just this term leopard distinguishes him from all the other Simons. So it tells us that something that happened here. It actually tells us that this man at some point or still had leprosy. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Now it could be that he's dead and this was the house and uh, when we bought one of our ranches, um, we were never known as the Menez Ranch. We were always known as the guy who established that ranch years before we got there. So we kind of just gave up trying to name our ranch because it was always the person who owned it before, right? So that might be the case. But let me think outside the box just a little bit and this is my personal thought. Maybe he was present. Maybe he was a leopard who the Lord Jesus Christ healed. You know, remember, there was 10 leopards who got healed by the Lord Jesus. How many of them came back? One. Maybe this was that guy. Maybe this was the guy who said, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. You did what I could not do. You cleansed me that I could not have been cleansed. Maybe this is him. There's also another leopard. Mark chapter 1, verse 40 says this. And a leopard came to Jesus. Now listen to the detail of this. Beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him. So the leopard's on his knees, beseeching Jesus, saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's Mark chapter one, verse 40. Maybe this is Simon the leopard. I, I think that's fascinating. If, I, again, this is my thought. Maybe that's him. And he's opened his home, which would have been scandalous to the religious leaders of the day. They would have kicked you out of the synagogue for sure, hosting a party for him. And here he is. Now, just one thought before I leave that. I want to mark in your minds, Christian, God loves hospitality. God loves when we open our homes, when we do things for other people, when we're hospitable to others, saved, unsaved. God loves this. And it's marked in the scripture that there's this fellowship going on, that there's this gathering, this home of Simon the leopard, whether it was his home or was Mary and Martha putting this on, we're not quite sure. But someone opened their home to Christ. And in that home, think about this, in that home, they anointed Jesus Christ as Lord. Now you can do that too. When you open your home, when you use your home for the glory of God, maybe you'll host a community group or you just find someone in the church that's new or, or old or somewhere and you say, come to my house, let us feed you and care for you. You anoint the Lord Jesus Christ. This is such an important point and I just wanted to hit this because I think that's fascinating that, that what takes place here. Now, notice the text says that as Jesus was reclining at the table, remember that short little tables, probably pillows along that, they ate and then they kind of leaned back on those pillows afterward and had a conversation. The Bible says there came a woman. Now Luke chapter seven records Mary Magdalene who does very, very similar to this. She anoints the Lord Jesus Christ from head to toe. But this seems to be the, the Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus in this. And you say, well, why is her name absent from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? They don't use her name, only John uses it. Well, here's my thought. I think when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, I think she was alive. I think she was alive, and they were protecting her. Do you know, and you can study this through some of the historians that, that write of this time, is that many of the people who followed Christ were murdered after his resurrection. Many of them. They hated Christ and they hated the followers of Christ. See, we know the disciples, all but John, were, were murdered. John was left to die on an island. 
um, in Patmos, but you have to realize they hated the followers of Christ. And, and there's many accounts that they went and, and killed those people. And it's possible that Lazarus not only died once in this world, but died twice. Because they went after him. Because you've got to get rid of Lazarus. I mean, you've got to get rid of that testimony. You cannot have him walking around the streets of Jerusalem going, yeah, Jesus raised me from the dead. <laughs> and so it's possible, and here's my thought, I think they were protecting Mary, and I think by the time John writes, which is 90s uh, AD, she is now with the Lord. That's my thinking there. But don't miss, here she comes among these reprehensible men that are in this, these haters of God, and then soon Judas in the text. Here comes this woman. She does not care about her social status. She, she's not thinking about uh, what people think of her. She doesn't care about the cost of what she's about ready to do. She wants to exalt Christ. And here she is. And she comes in. And notice she has an alabaster vial. And the, notice the text it says, was very costly perfume of nard. And she broke the vial and poured it on his head. Now, alabaster was a fine, finely textured uh, stone. Uh, you gotta, it's hard to get your mind around this, but you have to read on a little bit to figure it out. This stone most likely came from the, uh, maybe India, maybe in that part of the world, where they took these stones, they carved them, they were almost translucent, and they made bottles of them. Just the bottle alone was worth so much value. If you've ever found one of these things, they're, they're just priceless. So now you have this bottle um, of alabaster that someone made. It's shaped kind of like a flask in, in, in the fact that it had a long neck to it. And it contained about a pound of ointment in there, about 12 ounces. Now, when this ointment was released from this sealed bottle, it gave off this highly aromatic perfume. And, and, and evaporated rather quickly, but everybody in the, anywhere in the close area would smell that this thing was opened. Now, notice it was made of nard, the NASB says. This was an ointment that was derived from a plant in India. So, so you can imagine. Now, look, they don't have FedEx. It's not going to get to you before 10 tomorrow. This, this thing somewhere, some guy's milking plants, it's taken them forever to get 12 ounces. Some other guy is making a bottle that is out of stone and translucent, and how many of them broke before they got the one done? Who knows? This thing is extremely, extremely valuable. Notice the word pure in there, the adjective. It means it's unadulterated, it's sealed, it's original, it's trustworthy. This is the real deal. This is not some knockoff you get down on the black market somewhere. And such ointment, look, was so rare and so expensive. The flax themselves with the ointment were given as an inheritance. It was part of your inheritance. It was so valuable. And even we'll see Judas talk about 300 denarii, meaning that, that's over a year's salary just right there in her hand. That's what she had. Only the wealthy would have such a beautiful item in their possession. There seems to be, listen to this, no hesitation on Mary. Notice in the text. There she came with this alabaster vial, very costly perfume, a pure nard, and she broke the vial, poured it on his head. There's no hesitation um, she most likely breaks the neck of that bottle and without reluctancy, she just pours it on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew and Mark tell us that Mary poured the costly perfume on his head and John says that he, she wiped it with his feet. So not only did she pour it there, she began to take that and wipe his body down, wipe it down all the way to his feet. She was anointing our Savior. Now, 
it was common in this day when you came to a festival that when you came into somebody's house, a family member or something like that, they would pour a little oil on your head and rub it in because it was a very dry climate. It, it, it kind of looked like I put a little stuff in my hair too. You know, <laughs> makes you look a little better after you've been walking out in the dusty streets of the highways and byways. And it was a very kind gesture. But this was not that in any sense. This story of Mary's graceful act is one of the most beautiful recorded. In fact, you'll see at the end, the Bible says it'll always be remembered. This is a story of love and devotion. This is a story of immeasurable effort that comes out of this heart of this woman in amongst haters and pretenders. Now, let me close this point out with this thought. Just earlier that day, Jesus is refuting all of these religious leaders that are coming and attacking him. And in it, he talks about what is the greatest command. Do you remember that? And the man says it back. Jesus had already taught on this earlier in his ministry. He said that the greatest command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, guess who was listening? <laughs> Mary. Mary was listening to that. And, and here we're going to see the disciples. They're not listening, I don't think. She says, I'll give him everything I have. Maybe Father had set that aside, particularly for Mary. Mary, I know you're a woman. That it's life is difficult as a woman. This, this will see you through. Use this in a time of need. She saw that as, this is my opportunity to give all to the Lord. Because she believed, you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor like yourself. Third thought. The gospel in true worship will eventually expose pretenders. The gospel in true worship will eventually expose the pretender. Now, point three, we said the worship of Christ exposes the believer, right? The true follower. Well, the gospel does that for the unbeliever as well, for the pretender. When you preach the gospel, look, when we preach the gospel like we do, you're only going to last here so long. <laughs> I had a person leave my church one time and said, I'm going somewhere else. All you do is preach about Jesus Christ. I said, would you put that on writing? I really want that written down somewhere. See, you either say, I love Christ. He's everything to me. I see him from Genesis to Revelation. He's the theme of the scriptures. He's the story of God. He's God's son sent to rescue us. And you're captured by that. Or you get bugged by it after a while. You go, I, 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 I need something for life here. Come on, give me something for something to get through these days. Not knowing that Jesus Christ is what you need for your finances, your marriage, your children, your neighbors, everything else, he's everything you need. All contained in the all-sufficient word of God. And so the gospel and true worship eventually exposes the pretenders. And you're going to see it. Judas has worked very hard for three years to hide his real motives. For three years he has said, oh yeah, this is cool. Oh, we'll go along with that. And now he cannot stand it anymore. His flesh is going to come out. Watch what he does. Look at four and five. But some were indignant, remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money be given to the poor, and they were scolding her. Now, the Bible uses the word indignant. I want to explain that word. It means an inward, strong, angry reaction. Now, it's very important. Certainly that was on the outside, but it came from the inside. Whoever this is, and we think we know who it is, is very angry. Something is now exposing their real God. 
what they really love. And it's starting to come out of this. Indignation is coming out. Matthew uses um, the term that the disciples, plural. And notice at the end of verse 5, and it says, they were scolding her. So here it says there were some disciples who kind of jumped on the bandwagon with Judas, right? We're gonna, I'm going to show you that just in a minute. But Jesus' reaction to this backs off the true followers, and Judas comes forward as the pretender. That's what happens here. Luke, uh, excuse me, John chapter 12, 4 through 6. This is what the Bible says. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, this is John's commentary, who was intending to betray him, said, quote, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? End quote. Now John comes back again. Now he said this, Judas, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had, he had, he had control of the money box and he used to pilfer from it. So John, here years later, brings out, oh, this is what we're talking about. So you can see the scene. Judas says something that sounds, that sounds cool and righteous, right? Oh, yeah. Take care of the poor, the children. <laughs> People say that all the time, right? But then Jesus is going to rebuke that comment, and all of a sudden the other disciples are going to go, ooh, he's right, but not Judas. This glorious, really gospel presentation of the glory of who Christ is brings Judas to the forefront as being a pretender. He doesn't belong here. Notice the word why. Notice he says this. Um, and this is a quote from Judas here in Mark. Why has this perfume been wasted? So Judas is asking, to what end has this served? He's implying that this is an injustice, that this is an irreplaceable loss. <laughs> he doesn't get it. He doesn't see the value of it. And so he sees this as an irreplaceable. Once that bottle's broken, oh, it's over. He does not see the worship of Christ Instead, Judas hides behind this hypocritical statement about helping the poor. About helping the poor. It's, it's not that helping the poor is not good. We'll see that in a moment. But he's hiding behind it because in his heart, he's lusting. He is desiring to have that vial and its money and its content for himself. He sees no purpose on breaking it and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ with it. And his heart is truly exposed and then notice the statement. If that wasn't all bad enough, notice it says, and they were scolding her. In other words, why would you waste this precious commodity that could bring you great value on Jesus? See, Jesus, Judas knew the value of it. It's a year's wages. Year's wages in those days was hard wages to be earned. And he lusted after that. Look, legalism and religion take many forms. But one of the problems with legalism is it often falls back on the spiritual concept of stewardship. Now it's gonna get a little warm in here, so loosen the collar a little bit. One of the things we end up doing is we don't take a step of faith often because we're gonna be stewards of God's, people, God's stuff. And we love to quote his parables, and certainly stewardship is an important thing. I don't want to say that it's not to be a good steward of the things God gives you, but it's our fallback, right? When God pushes on our heart to do something extraordinary for him, to step out in a faith, give in such a way, or do something in such a way, we often fall back and say, well, you know, you have to be a steward of the things of God. And we often don't give more because we value the principle of Christian stewardship more important than the worship of our beloved Savior. 
Now, I was reading J.C. Ryle, another 1800th guy that I love, and I want to read him so you take it from him and not me and not get mad at me. But listen, this is what J.C. Ryle said about this text. The spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders, speaking about those who always fall to stewardship, fault finders unhappily is too often common. Their followers and their successors are always to be found part of Christ's visible church even today. There is never wanting a generation of people who decry what they call extremes in religions or incessantly recommending what they, the term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, his money, his affection to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself to the service of money and pleasure and politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of folly with him. He is besides himself. He is out of his mind. He's a fanatic. He's an enthusiast. He's righteous over too much. He's too much righteous. He is an extreme man. In short, they regard it as a waste and abuse of stewardship. End quote, J.C. Ryle. That's how they looked at this woman. Judas says, this is absurd. I wrote in my notes after this, and I'm not sure just how the Lord brought me to the understanding of this, but I wrote just a comment right in my notes. I said, a cold heart makes a slow hand. Mm. A cold heart makes a slow hand. When you're cold towards the things of Christ, when you're cold towards the word of God, you can be motivated, maybe a sermon like this, you'll, oh, I better give something because I, I feel bad. And that's not what this is about. This is about shows the difference between pretenders and worshipers. See, a cold heart does not see the need. Judas' heart was cold, dark, and black and did not see the need to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to anoint him publicly for who he is and what he was about to do. He did not see the need for that because his heart was cold and dark. And justifications are easy when there is some sense of obligation to Christ. But, but look, Christ comes, God comes, he disappoints the plans of selfish men like Judas. He disappoints what he wanted because he wants Christ's glory exposed. So if Judas's plan was to use that money for himself most likely, God said, that's not gonna happen. I want it all dumped on my son because he's worthy of it. And this woman had a warm heart and her actions exposed her love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, one more thought on this. Those who understand the sinfulness of sin, and they understand the mercy of God and the sacrifice that he did for us, they'll never think that it's not enough, right? I hope when you give, I hope you give a portion of your income and a portion of what God gave you um, to his work. I hope you do that. That's, that's an act of obedience to the Lord. But if you're like Gene and I, it's just not enough. You know that. You know it's not enough. And, and you, you, you feel like, oh, you know, I'm not giving that. You want to give more. And though maybe you don't have the resources at the time, you desire to give more. That's, that's, the, that's the abundance of the heart. That's a love for the Lord that I know many of you have. And it all comes from the gospel. The psalmist said it this way, Psalms 116, verse 12. Listen to this. What shall I render to the Lord for all the benefits towards me? The psalmist says, what can I, what can I give? How do I match what he did? It's, it's rhetorical, isn't it? You can't. But, but he's thinking, he's wrestling with, how can I give? How can I give for a God who's done so much for me? Romans chapter five says, look, while we were helpless, 
while we're still helpless. That means spiritually bankrupt, penniless when it comes to the spiritual department. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And you know the verse, he says that there may be one who might come and lay his life, a good man might lay his right self down for a righteous man, but that's, that falls way short of the illustration. He says, but God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners, bankrupt. Christ died for us. He justified us, declared us righteous. When we were enemies, he reconciled us to himself, the verse goes on to say. What's that worth? Anybody want to put a price on your eternity? I mean, it's, that's the difference, and that's what God's after. And, and maybe you're like the widow that he just represented that only had a mite. Or maybe God has blessed you, and you, you, God has given you wealth and, and let you manage his stuff in a, maybe a greater way. Comes down to your love for the gospel. Comes down for our love for the Lord. Fourth, the Lord exonerates the true worshiper. Oh, I love this part. Look at verses six through nine with me. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. And she has done what she could do. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Verse nine. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached in all the world, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. Well, this statement about Mary rivals anything he says about anybody else. He speaks about a Roman centurion and his faith, and there's others. But this, this is unrivaled statement about this woman. And notice his protection of her. He protects those who give, those who worship her, doesn't he? He says, leave her alone. <laughs> Imagine, when you heard him say that, this is the same one who said, seas be still, you know, deaf sea, dead men rise, all that. He says, leave her alone. Can you imagine the silence in that room? <laughs> I'm not with Judas. <laughs> I mean, what a statement. And here, our Lord protecting this dear sister in the Lord. And notice now he uses the word why. The why was back up there, this injustice, and, and why would this happen? Now he uses the same term. He says, why do you bother her? In, in a sense, he, he now is saying, why are you doing this act of injustice to her? You called her act of injustice. Why are you being unjust to her? Why are you doing this? And only Jesus sees this woman's act as a devotion to him, as beautiful. Notice he calls it a good deed. Then notice Jesus immediately is contrasting her beautiful worship to their complaining spirit. Oh, the Lord does this to me all the time. I'll complain about something, then I'll start reading my Bible and go, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> right, because there's a great contrast. Yeah, here's you, Scott, complaining about this, and here's what the Bible says. And this is what he does. He's contrasting this. He's trying to show, look, this woman has done a great deed, and you have this complaining spirit. Notice she, he says, she has done good to me. Jesus acknowledges that his, her worship was related to his person. It was an act of devotion to him. And, and notice in verse seven and eight, he starts with this word for. It's, it's, it's this idea there's something greater going on here. There's something bigger than you can see. There's something timeless here. She's gonna be an example of how you worship and how you anoint the Lord Jesus Christ and not care what anybody thinks. She's gonna be that example. And then he makes this statement, you always have the poor with you. Well, that's a historical fact, isn't it? 
from Genesis 3 to today, in fact, till the coming of Jesus Christ, we will always have the poor with us. Now, this is not some excuse. Notice he uses the word always here. It's not an excuse for Christians not to care for poor. We strive to do that here. Our deacons work hard to care for those who are struggling in our church and sometimes even out of our church. The amount of people we've helped during even this time is, is, is good. But that's not what it is. He, Jesus is saying, look, since the fall, man has been spiritually and physically bankrupt. You're gonna have them till I set my feet back on this earth and set up my kingdom. They're gonna be with you. I am not. And, and, and brothers and sisters, we should think about this for just a moment. We have this limited time with the Lord Jesus Christ here, right? As, as him ruling on our hearts here on this earth. Meaning, listen, think about this. For one gazillion, bazillion years from now, I'll be alive with Christ. I maybe get 70, 80, if I'm, if I'm fortunate, and I don't know if that's even what I want, 90 years on this earth. Incomparable to eternity. So we take these opportunities to, to worship the Lord, and yes, the poor are here, and yes, it's, it's a biblical thing to care for those in needs, and we should do those things, but Christ is above all. And he's recognizing that, and he's calling Judas out. You hypocritical pretender. You're gonna hide behind that political statement, aren't you? You're not gonna have me much longer. I mean, what a statement that he makes. Notice, he says, she has done what she could. This is particular to Mark, and it means that she saw the opportunity to worship the Lord, and she took it. She didn't say, well, maybe next week. There was no next week. Jesus is dying in 48 hours. She saw her opportunity, and she said, this is my time to honor and glorify the Savior, and she takes that. This is why she's to be remembered look, when I studied this, I gotta confess to you, man, your conscience is stabbed. <laughs> I hope yours is too, not by me, but by the Spirit of God, that you go, wow, God, I want to worship you in such a way. I wanna see these opportunities and seize them to anoint you in front of whoever. I wanna exalt you. Listen, brothers and sisters, the day is coming we're gonna end up doing that. They're not gonna let us keep doing what we're doing forever. The haters and the pretenders will gather together and they will stand against the church. And we will have the great opportunity to publicly say, we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. My life is his. And that's coming more. And so I think now we learn and we look, we look at a woman like this and we learn from it. Notice it says at the end of eight, he says, she's preparing my body beforehand for burial. What an interesting thing. I'm not sure Mary understood or maybe she did. Maybe she was listening when Jesus said over at least 11 times throughout the Gospels that I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be fall into the hands of evil men and they're going to crucify me and put me to death and I'm going to be buried and I'm going to raise again. Maybe she did. Maybe out of all of them, she was listening to say, the Messiah is going to die. That, that was not in the radar of most Jewish people, including the disciples. They're more worried about, do I get the left hand or do I get the right hand? What, what throne do I get to sit on? Maybe she understood that. And, and so, listen, this is a pre-burial anointing. And one of the things, if you study, I don't think Mary of Bethany was at the tomb on the resurrection day. I think it's the other Marys that are there. This may have been his only anointing because I don't think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus did a very good job with it, according to the ladies. 
And by the time the ladies get there, what? He's raised from the dead. So this is his anointing. This is pointing to him as the the sacrifice for our sins. This is the son of God. He needs to be anointed. Notice the Bible says, wherever the gospel is preached, he says, truly, verse nine, I say to you, look, this is unparalleled promise, God says. Truly, I say to you, when the gospel is preached to the world, she will be remembered. And that means whatever place the gospel goes, this is part of it. There's people who will stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who we look for around the world to support, to be a part of ministry around the world. And this woman right here, he says, what this woman has done will be spoken in memory. And let me just tie this up and then quickly hit our last point. I don't think it's only her, but I think it's every other brother and sister who's ever stood up for the Lord Jesus and gave from his heart or from her heart. I think that's all part of the gospel message. Gospel is certainly Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for us, but it's a whole group of people who believe that and stand with it. And so Mary's actions and all those who proclaim the gospel in their lives are a memorial of his crucifixion and his resurrection. We're a memorial. The Bible says we are the body of Christ. So we're a memorial to him. And so when the gospel is preached, oh, there's dear brothers and sisters that call me all the time and say, thank the church that they, they care for us and they stand with the gospel as we're over here doing what we're doing. You're a memorial of what Christ did. Last thought, five. In the end, there is no difference between the haters and the pretenders. There's no difference between the haters and the pretenders. Look at verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began to seek how to betray him at the opportune time. In all of history, there's no greater name associated with a pretender than Judas. You moms and dads are thinking about naming your kid. I don't think you've looked at the list of the top 10 names and found Judas there. <laughs> you may have found Jude. <laughs> one of the disciples of Christ. But, but you don't find Judas. Because he's always associated with a betrayal of Christ and a pretender. And here we now see him being called one of the 12, one who walked and talked and witnessed the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now Judas stands in great contrast to the beauty of Mary and what she did. He's an absolute contrast to her. Mary exalts him, he betrays him. Mary goes against society and peer pressure. He goes with it and falls into condemnation. What, a, what an amazing stance that's given here. Look, though the Bible doesn't say it, it seems, here's, here's my commentary, it seems the Spirit of God falls upon Mary in a unique way to do what she did. In the Old Testament, we see that where the Spirit of God does not indwell, that does not happen until after the resurrection, the birth of the church, where the Spirit of God now indwells with us permanently. The Spirit of God came upon Old Testament saints and empowered them to do things, and I think that's probably what happened here, even though the text, that's my thought. But let me say this, in the same way, Satan falls upon Judas to do what he did. You either belong to the, son who work, the, the one who works in the sons of the prince of darkness or you belong to Christ, one or the other. There's no, there's no middle ground. And I think I have biblical proof. Listen to this, Luke chapter 22, three through four, speaking of the same scene, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the 12. And he went away to discuss with the chief priests and officers how he'd betray them. Mary, spirit of Christ, spirit of God falls upon her, anoints and exalts Christ. Satan falls upon a man who is a pretender. 
Notice he went off to the chief priests and in order to portray him, this, here's this massive Jewish celebration that's going on. It's a lucrative week. The, the Jews, these chief priests, the Sanhedrin group, they're trying to figure out how are we gonna pull this off and, and here comes Judas gonna do it all for them. Gonna do it all for them. I mean, can you imagine they've been sitting here wringing their hands trying to figure out how we're gonna kill this guy and not get blamed for it. And here comes Judas. Satan's always looking for opportunities, isn't he? Matthew 26, 15 says, what are you willing to give to betray him? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver, an average cost of a slave. That's what he, that's what he betrayed Jesus for. The average cost of a slave. See, the pretenders and the haters, they're now together now. They're like-minded. All the, all the uh, outside has been stripped off. They're both haters of Christ in all realities. And notice they were glad when they heard this. This answered their problems. What were they going to do? And now they begin, look at this. He, that's Judas, right at the end of the text, begins to seek how to betray him in an opportune time. That's premeditated, isn't it? That's premeditated murder. How, how am I going to do this? Okay, he loves to go to the Mount of Olives. He loves the garden. That's where he prays a lot. I'll get the chief, I'll get the, the chief high priest and all, all the priestly uh, police with him and we're gonna go there and then I'll point him out and I'll betray him with a what? Kiss. He premeditated it. See, he's no longer just a pretender. He hates the Christ. He's rejected him. And these religious leaders who had attempted to figure out how to seize Jesus, now they have a free pass because Jesus is gonna do it for them. The language speaks of transferring Jesus from me to you. I'm going to transfer him over to you. And we know the rest of the story. That's exactly what happens. So, in closing, what about you? I mean, we can't look at this and not think. I, I think probably nobody in this room, because you probably would not come here if you were a true hater of God, unless you're just trying to prove a point or trying to build a case of some sort. But there could be pretenders here. There's always, there's always those among the flock of God that don't belong to him. Jesus said the tares will always be among the wheat. There's those who are raised in church. They sure know what to do. They know what to say. They know where to go. They won't know what not to say for sure. But yet their hearts have never been changed. And eventually, and this is what happens, eventually their morals, their upbringing their church ease can't hold them any longer and they run off and do what they're gonna do. I hope that's not you. And if it is, I would plead with you to confess that to the Lord and say, I think I'm a pretender. I wanna know you. I wanna truly be like this woman who would give all for you, Lord. I wanna love you in that way, but I can't do it myself. Will you help me? Will you open my heart, Lord? That was the prayer you ought to pray. For those in this room that say, I, I do believe Jesus has saved me. I do believe I'm a true worshiper. I would pray this as I prayed this week studying this. God, help me be ready for opportunities to anoint you. Be it ready both with wallet and tongue and deed to say, oh God, this is my opportunity to exalt you. And I would not miss that opportunity. I think there's those in here as well so you have to ask the question, where's the role of money, wealth, prestige, perception in comparison to the worship of Christ? Where is that with you? I trust that you're a worshiper of the Lord and you're here because you wanna 
You want to know him more. You want to quit messing around. You've realized this world is going to go to hell in a handbasket, and you can see it happening, can't you? And you go, I want to be with Jesus. And you're here today for that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together in your word. What an astounding passage. The word seems to strip back all the pretensions. It seems to strip back all the false and hypocritical views. And it comes down to who we really are before the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the example of this woman. You said in all the world, as the gospels preached, she would be remembered, and we've remembered her today. And yet, Lord, we are asking, I know many in this room, many are listening now, many will hear this message and over time, we want to be like her, Lord. We want to see opportunities to anoint Jesus. Anoint him, lift him up, exalt him. And we want to be the people who take advantage of that, Lord, who step up at that time. From the wallet to our lives, Lord, to the things we have, to the people that we care for, all of that, Lord, we want to give to you in worship. Lord, we're human, we're but dust. We could sin before we could get out of the parking lot. We know what, we know ourselves. So we ask you for help, Lord. Help us not to act like pretenders, but help us to act like worshipers. Give us strength through the gospel. Let that be our motivation, Lord. Uh, not just a sermon or, or an appearance at church, Lord. May the gospel be our motivation today. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.